Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. The human experience is exploring the realms of sexual intimacy as we speak to my guest, Dr. Stuart Sovatsky. Stuart, welcome to HXP. Thanks, Xavier. You've spent 40 years studying this material, but I'd really like to just dig into your book. I was, I really liked your, your writing style. It's very to the point. And I was kind of wondering where the book was 10 years ago when I needed to read it. In the book, you detail your own yogic awakening that happened 40 years ago. What, what led you to yoga and what happened when, when you realized that this was so powerful? Well, it's a beautiful question. And thanks for asking. It does take me back to my hippie era. I was in college from 1967 to 71, which was uh, maybe now ancient history, but it was the peak era of um, campuses were just alive with psychedelic exploration and and peace movements. And I was uh, like a good number of my friends, actually it was at Princeton University um, on that campus. I was having, you know, mystical experiences, majored in religion switched from uh, pre-med, biology and chemistry, mainly because I I wanted to understand what these psychedelics were all about, and the chemistry was not giving me as good answers as religion courses. So I ended up majoring in uh, East-West religion, but it wasn't until about two years after graduating, I went to a yoga class, and in one of, this was 1972, yoga was barely known, And after uh, my first class, I realized that I was in a much more balanced state, but equally impressive as uh, the psychedelic uh, types of explorations. So I went to every class that that teacher provided, and eventually he invited us to something called an ashram, a word I'd never heard of. That was probably 1973 or 4 and uh, started going to retreats with uh, something called a guru, who was uh, a totally new kind of person to me too. He was just so loving to everyone, and the way he pronounced my name, I can still remember it. It was with more love and appreciation than I could could remember ever before. So one thing after another, I did all that the yoga guru was describing, getting up at 4 a.m., doing yoga with the sunrise, uh, fasting uh, w- once a week for a day to let the, the uh, digestion cool down, all kinds of things. Uh, and then he offered an initiation, must have been around 75, and that just changed everything. Uh, he, he whispered a mantra in my ear along with about 20 of my friends, and uh, my body sensations have never been the same. It's now 40 years later. Uh, I can feel it to the second, and I just kept um, following the other suggestions that he would make. And that's roughly, you know, the, the, the answer to, you know, where, where did all of this begin? It's very, very interesting, just only because when I, several years ago, I had 
I, I guess I didn't know at the time it was a Kundalini awakening based my spine activated. And I mean, I found it a harrowing experience. It was incredibly difficult. I mean, why, why do you think this is so important? I mean, like why, why is this intimacy between a partner through sex such a sacred experience? Well, it, it, the extent, the expanse of that kind of connection can be very simple to very profound. It can be not that much different than um, just mutually arousing each other. And it can go all the way to the, you could say, the secret of life because nobody really gets conceived and born without um, the semen and ovum connecting to one another. So as soon as we're with another person that way, yeah, it could be anything from a simple kind of hookup, uh, which th- we, that word already points to kind of a, just a kind of a, a very elementary connection, but it can go all the way to certainly making new life. Do you feel like just the casual kind of hookup, as you said, do you think that's damaging to the more subtle bodies? Well, not, nothing is only, you know, uh, only one way. Certainly it, it has an effect of, of detaching uh, the, the sexual activity from a committed relationship, and that'll have certain kinds of side effects. Uh, but um, it, it's kind of challenging to find a partner that you uh, can set a high standard with, and, and some people do. They set a, a, a higher standard and will only be, go to bed with someone that they feel very close to, and other people will only go to bed with someone after they're married. So, you know, each of these choices has its own strengths and limitations. I think I fall into the category of not being able to have sex with someone unless, unless I'm deeply connected into the person. So, I mean, how there's a bunch of stuff that I want to, I want to go over and I apologize if I'm jumping around, but how important is semen retention for the male in, in your opinion? Yeah, that's a, that concept has come, come from India maybe about 30 or 40 years before uh, ago. Before that, the idea of semen retention would be uh, only considered kind of pathological. Uh, so it's a, it, just getting it to be acceptable to, uh, for the male to delay or, per, or completely uh, 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 not have the typical ejaculation. That's a whole new concept. But the, where I'm coming from is more that it's a reverence for the seed. It's not merely the mechanics of being good at not ejaculating for a long period of time or for months and months at a time, or years or decades. It's, it's what is the seed and what relationship can we have with uh, menstruation for that matter and for uh, spermatozoa. And I, the essence of this uh, tantra really is not mechanical. It, it, it starts out being taught just the mechanics, but really that's just the first level. It's really to do with respect for life, that the seed is a very powerful thing the body can create. And in that, the man, in this case, uh, develops a very profound relationship with his own body. Uh, uh, the semen is not something casual, even though we might think of it that way in our culture. Uh, you start feeling, wow, and then what, what Tantra is saying is that it's not the final substance that the body makes. The semen itself has tremendous amount of information, obviously can create when united with the ovum, it will create a, a human body and bring a, a human soul into our incarnation. So the retention is just the bare mechanics. It's like uh, saying, well, let's put gas on the car, that'll be good, but then just keep it your car in the garage. No, there's lots of places you can go to. And that's what I'm describing. First is 
you can understand your DNA, you can understand the body's capacity to create life. And not only that, uh, the life that created us and our grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-great-grandparents until we get to the chicken and egg problem, which is where did this all start? And if, if there was parents, then there had to be parents of those parents. Until you get to a, a tracing back and you kind of wonder, well, maybe God, maybe some source created it that was there all along. Because the chicken and the egg is, there has to be another chicken or egg behind it. So if you feel connected with your own fertility uh, and you do a deep meditation on it, which I include in uh, my advanced spiritual intimacy book, I try to guide people uh, backwards in time, you start feeling like, wow, uh, this goes back thousands and, uh, and thousands of generations. And you can feel it, not just hear it intellectually. And likewise, if you have a child, uh, it, there's the potential, and whether heterosexual or, or of a different orientation, people can uh, adopt or have their create their own children, and their children's children are inside of their children. And you start to look at a, a one's own baby, and realize that inside of the baby is the potential for that baby's baby, 30 years from now, and you get what I call a perception of the big now. The, the now is very popular to be in the present, but how big is this now? Is it just a little tiny thing that you're in now? Not at all. In uh, uh, the semen and the ovum is a, is a place to tune into to feel this now has been going on a long time and we're part of something. Each incarnation is part of something, a wave of incarnation that is very profound. So this is a broadening of uh, the, you know, just the practice, the ability to retain semen just gives you a chance to tune into it and go very, very deeply uh, into the meaning of life itself. I mean, I, I find this topic highly intellectual. I mean, we're in a world of Tinder and just these casual kind of throwaway plastic cup hookups, I mean, where would you regard our society as far as understanding how sacred and how profound these experiences are? Well, I must say you ask very beautiful questions, and I, I, I definitely want to thank you for it. Uh, and you're putting it in a historical sense to my ear. You know, uh, the Catholic Church was the, the power structure in our culture that talked about sexuality for a couple thousand years, and they were overdoing it. They were uh, making sex be ver totally about fertility and, and procreation, but they didn't really have a, a well-described path of maturity where couples would, uh, in terms of the male, not just retain semen, but be so in such a devotional mood with his partner and she with him, and excuse the heterosexual context, but let me just stay with it for a while. Uh, but that the way they would relate to one another, that uh, it would be almost really a natural contraception. In other words, the fertility would be converted into a type of awe, emotions of awe and bliss, and, uh, and that gives a very different kind of, of sexual exchange. Um, you can see that this is not taught, even in many tantric uh, teachings, but in, in some it is taught. Uh, and so if your casual relations um, will tend to perpetuate, not necessarily, it's, uh, people are learning new things all the time, but it will not give people a chance to, do, to mature to the level of what I'm talking about could even be possible. Freud came along in the 20s, 30s, and 40s and 
and kind of got sex freed up. And ever since the 40s, 50s, 60s, particularly on, it's been like a you know, free-for-all to try to be uh, sexually free. Because for a couple thousand years, people felt tremendously guilty in the West about, according to the, oh, you know, the New Testament, or I should say more of the, the Catholic Church teachings. So Freud took it a, a big step forward, of at least it's not sinful, but, and then uh, it's, it, it's, it's natural and beautiful, but he, he could only go as far really as this teenage puberty. And what I'm opening up with Tantra, with, with the Tantric texts are opening up really, is a puberty that comes our whole life long in which this new type of eroticism becomes possible. Right, right. There's a there's a passage in your book that I really liked. I'm going to read it. It's two people chained to one another in endless causality by their reverberating attractions to one another. Endless irresistibility inciting endless irresistibility. Chemical fusions, reactions of the entire polarized universe. Every glistening radus permeated cell poised aimed at him at her. And nothing else is what every living gendered fiber wants. Has ever wanted a hundred a thousand a million years i mean wow that's so powerful these words so i mean i i've i've had the chance to have tantric experiences i'm i guess i'm lucky in that sense and i started i started meditating practicing meditation very early on and i would meditate for hours and hours a day and i guess this sort of opened me up to being more sensitive to energy and the connection that a person has with their lover. So when I find myself, and and this is also why I, I feel like I'm as choosy or as picky as I am with who I decide to have sex with, but when this is accomplished, I feel like a tantric orgasm is... I mean, it's it's indescribable. It's on a whole other level than just the physical sense of having an orgasm. Would you agree? Exactly, and it's and it's helpful because modern science is catching up with uh, being able to name what goes on uh, in this kind of tantric experience. You know that really you would have to say, or you could say, that the pineal and the center of the brain, known as the hypothalamus is the source of this other kind of orgasm. And it sends uh, actually everything from oxytocin, which is called the love hormone, makes people, when you have oxytocin in your bloodstream, you'll, you'll fall in love and feel love for, for the person you're with. Serotonin, which is, relates to how awake we feel in LSD sent uh, serotonin off the map. And then even DMT is secreted in the uh, hypothalamus. And melatonin, which makes us feel our sense of time, or you could say timelessness. Also, inner light uh, it occurs when melatonin is secreted in the brain. So what I think we, we could say your experience uh, that you're describing is that when you establish rapport, energy with, with a partner, and you have attunement, the energy of each other is going to go all the way up your spine. The most primitive level would be just two people masturbating each other and not even knowing each other. You know, just the first center at the bottom of the spine. 
But when you, what you're describing is the energy is, is moving all the way up and affecting this pineal gland, by the way, many philosophers said that was where the soul lives, uh, and the hypothalamus, which is the center, the sex center of the brain, according to science, by the way, hypothalamus in uh, Greek means the little wedding chamber, and uh, in yoga, that's where the male and female also have a kind of a union, and you feel all kinds of bliss uh, emerging from that chakra, the ajna uh, chakra corresponding to the hypothalamus. So in your experience, what you're describing, uh, science would say that your connection heated up your not just genitals and heart, where you feel connected to someone emotionally, but it went all the way up and hit the hypothalamus and uh, pineal gland, and your bloodstream got filled with all these hormones that give rise to the feelings that you described and the abilities of perception that you were describing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, would you say, you talk about a puberty of the spine and how developing or awakening the Kundalini can, can take couples beyond this traditional idea of Western sexuality. How, how would you say that this awakening is achieved? Uh, it, you see, fun, you see uh, signs of it in all the different world religions. So it's so deep into the human nature that it's not just, you know, you have to kind of say it's part of human nature that hasn't been mapped out by modern uh, sexology. Uh, that um, <clears throat> if you have, if a person has m many experiences what you're, that you described having, we would be able to say that the body is now functioning at that level. It's, it, it's matured, it would be my term, um, not just to ejaculate or have a genital exchange, and then also a loving exchange, which is a heart center, but all the energy naturally goes up and down the spine. And when we do see this worldwide, in prayer forms, for sure, uh, Jews have a form they call davening, and their spot, they rock back and forth as they pray. It looks identical to Islamic, uh, what's called zikr, they're rocking exactly the same in Judaism and in, in Islamic religion. In Buddhism, uh, the rocking is brought to a stillness called ujukaya, and the, all the Buddhists will meditate with their spines, really in what we could call a, 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 a certain kind of an erection. The spine becomes uh, tumescent ujukaya, uh, roughly means the, uh, uh, the erection of the whole body. Um, and all Hatha Yoga originated when that energy going up the spine would also go out the, the spinal nerves and make the body dance. And you see this in trance dancing and shamanic cultures. Trance dancing means you're not, your body's moving itself. And these movements are very much like the movements of a baby, very young little baby. You can see it, the baby's incarnating himself or herself by mo the movements they make, very much like what goes on in the womb. But this process of energy moving in the body so that we further incarnate, see it in babies, see it in fetuses, uh, it can go on one's whole lifetime. And it's very spontaneous, you're not in control of it, it just happens, like labor contractions happen in a mother, like uh, the movements of a, of a fetus in the womb, making fingers, making arms, you can watch it on, on ultrasound, uh, and babies certainly do it. But if you tune into that energy, uh, your body will start moving on its own. And yoga of today 
disguises this fact because all the asanas are done by memorization, by imitation. But for a much longer time, uh, some scholars say six, seven hundred year period in India, the spontaneous yoga was much more prevalent than trying to hold poses with your ego. And like I say, we see these movements in what they call charismatic religions. A move, a religions where people are shaking like holy rollers shake, or like uh, even belly dance. Belly dance is not just an entertainment in a, a Middle Eastern restaurant, or uh, merely something that is a kind of a, 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 a sexual way of, for women to dance. It can happen spontaneously when Kundalini is active in a female body, and the men in those cultures, they feel that they're not just being excited uh, by the beauty of the woman, they feel that the awe of the feminine energy, which is connected to fertility and to the source, that, that they're being energized by that. So you start to see that uh, the energy of sex, as it keeps changing, it goes up the spine, causes the body to shake and move about. You see it worldwide in all kinds of religions. And this very movement simultaneously moves the energy throughout the whole body. And what I'm saying, it matures the glandular system. It matures it so much that we have to eventually admit that the body goes through a completely new puberty that comes after the teenage puberty. So, I mean, wouldn't that be an interesting question on a dating site? Is your kundalini activated? Yes, no. Um, so, I mean, these compounds that you talk about in the brain, DMT specifically, seem to me as like an evolution compound. I mean, you're when you're activating your pineal gland, it seems like you're orienting yourself to participate in your own evolution through activating these more subtle bodies. But to play devil's advocate here a bit, what would you say the dangers of, of activating your kundalini would be? Well, it, you know, it, in a holistic way, there would be very little danger because uh, your, your character would be maturing, your uh, value system, uh, how, how fair you are with other people, um, your family history would be, you know, going well in childhood. But, you know, when in a culture such of our, as ours, people can take up a practice of sort of piecemeal uh, and just do like a lot of heavy breathing and not pay attention to how am I living my life, how am I treating people. And you can, to some degree, force these energies to awaken. And that forced way of waking it has side effects for, for many people. It, it, it's not a balanced awakening. Uh, Gopi Krishna who was first to publish on Kundalini in the West around 1970, 1971, he, he did a forced awakening. He describes it in great detail, uh, uh, that he was sitting for like 15, 16 years and willfully trying to do it. He, he didn't have singing and dancing, for example. He just was trying to bowl himself into this, uh, uh, some kind of an, of an enlightenment. And as a result, he, his system was too hot. Willfulness creates heat. Just like uh, uh, too much passivity and not much will happen, will be lethargic. But he was way over on the side of being very forceful, and it was. Uh, he, he describes how troubling that was. He was hot all the time, and uh, had m many difficulties. And that was in India. 
So here, yeah, like many things, uh, going into a, a, a therapy or um, even a sport, we want to t- t- go into it in a, in a way that balances lots of aspects of our life, not just the awakening of an energy. I mean, I'm, I'm imagining all the couples listening to this right now and, and suddenly getting incredibly aroused. But, uh, I mean, you go into some yoga postures. How, how important are these asanas and the mudras? When they're done with the, with the mood of, of devotion or like dancing, then they're fun. And not just fun on a playful way, but it could be the, the joy of being devotional, of being grateful of feeling uh, the, the, the magic of the ability to move the body. Uh, so it, it's really uh, the, uh, the mudras, all these different bodily expressions can come from an emotional place rather than um, trying to do a technique. And that unlocks their, uh, I, I would call it their deeper significance. And they're just uh, ways of um, like kissing. You can have sex without kissing but you can have sex with kissing. It's not necessarily a technique. It's out of love, and you enjoy each other. And in that sense, the mudra that fits with kissing is, uh, involves the tongue. And when the, when the tongue gets sufficiently aroused for enough months and day, years at a time, it will, it, it, its nerves will trigger a kind of orgasm in the pineal gland. So it, it's uh, the whole body, the fingertips could have types of orgasms. When, if you're feeling a certain type of joy, you can't see me on your Skype screen, but I'm, I'm moving my fingers in all kinds of you know, joyful ways, and you start to get totally liberated, not just liberated from the guilt-ridden sex, but liberated to uh, express all, kind, all these wonderful feelings with a partner who's doing it with you, that was the poem you read of, from my book. You know, it came directly from an experience of, with a partner, and it was just, uh, yeah, that magical interactivity. And mudras, but with hand gestures, with tongue gestures, they just come out of the body from where they've been waiting to come out for maybe a long time. Hmm. Interesting. I, you know, I, I want to talk about marriage and relationships just because it seems like society has changed and I, you know, more and more through my parents and my friends who are married and have kids now. And I, I feel this pressure to get married or move into, you know, a, a serious relationship. And how, how important is, is that to what we're talking about? Well, again, you, Xavier, you're asking these wonderful, wonderful questions. Um, we have to imagine that marriage is the, is the prize instead of something that will overwhelm us. To fall in love is probably, all would agree, to find someone who falls in love with you, who you've fallen in love with, is just a wonderful, wonderful thing. The, 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 the possibility that, that that type of love could be strong enough to never exhaust, even through 50 years of ups and downs and money issues or having to move around from one city to another, uh, even difficulties in communicating. The possibility that love that you feel when you're in that so-called honeymoon period, 
you know, if we felt that falling in love would last a lifetime and only get better year after year, who wouldn't want to start at the age of like even 18 or 20? You'd be excited to jump right in because the sooner you find each other, the, the, the sooner you'll be able to go through all these different stages. The problem is Freud only mapped out human development to the teenager and said that's what sex is and there's not much of a change after that. And all the scientists since then believe, believe him. And, and no matter how much new data they find about the pineal gland and the oxytocin and all of that, I'm the first one. I've been publishing for about, you know, over 30 years now. But, it, you know, it takes a while to change a, a huge paradigm about um, human maturity. How far can it go? But if we knew that these puberties were going to keep happening, it, finding a partner would be like getting to start at the, you know, at the peak years of, uh, of being a 20-year-old. So instead of feeling pressured by culture in which we would be in conflict, oh, their expectations, why are they forcing this upon us? It would be completely the opposite. Dating sites would be, almost, they would just facilitate people. They'd maybe meet five or 10 different people, but nobody would waste any time because they'd feel that energy of attraction. And my book hopes to show people hundreds of different ways to overcome problems, communication problems, sexual problems, problems with money, problems with in-laws, with parents, becoming parents oneself, uh, issues about aging and becoming pretty old, 40, 50, 60, 78, all the way to death, tries to map out all the typical issues but show how easy and beautiful it can be to go through them with someone. So in that map, uh, the pressure is much more about enthusiasm, I would call it. It's not from, it's not, no one needs to tell us to do it or not do it. It's like if, if there's a swimming pool on a hot day, people are going to jump right in. I mean, do you have any, do you have any advice for a person like me? My last three dates were terrible. And I mean, is there a way to move through the more ambiguous kind of, because I, I essentially am looking for someone who is, is as aware as I am. And I just feel like relationships are so ambiguous nowadays and people just kind of are looking for one thing, which is sex and the, the sacredness of, of the experience is gone. And I just, I feel like an alien on a a planet and I'm just, it's so frustrating. And I don't know. I mean, maybe you can give me some advice. Well, again, you know, you're, you're giving me from your very heart the hopes of for love in your very own life. This is, uh, uh, in most interviews, it's much more intellectual. And I really am touched because I can feel your, your beauty to fall in love with someone and who will fall in love with you and create a sacred container for it that won't just be frivolous and that you feel great respect for the woman and for you to meet the woman who would feel that reciprocal uh, connection with you, you, don't, you, you're ready for it. And the, the, the sadness is that everybody, you know, so many people are very scared and scaring each other. 
And so uh, you never get much beyond the first or second date because people are, are calling it quits before it even gets started. That, as a marriage therapist for you know, 40 some years, I, I saw this beginning to happen. It's funny, you know, as Match.com got going to help people, it also gave people so many possibilities. That alone, and, and that's not the only way, but if you have lots of possibilities, why stop with the first person? And, and lots of people are entering into it with meeting somebody, new people, and they're dismissing each other. Well, sometimes just because they have 10 other people on their, on their away, uh, dating website that they want to check out. And by the time they come back to the other one, the person is either you know, frustrated or they found somebody for a little while or they're so lonely they are willing to just hook up and at least have some human warmth for one night. So it kind of gets all fragmented. So I'm not I'm not sure if you're a fan of uh, Salvador Dali, the surrealist. He in the late 1920s he he uh, he had a very interesting approach. He he made a painting called the Great Masturbator, and you can you can see the evolution of of how we view sex and. And, you know, in the 20s and you're just you're looking at this this guy and his face is down like the women. And I mean, he had a really interesting way of kind of classifying how in that period people viewed sex. So, I mean, what I mean, in your experience, is there is there anything that struck you as profound or. I mean, is there something that you can share with us that kind of changed your thinking? Yeah, it's a very beautiful question. You know, uh, the, 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 I think of Dolly as giving us images, and but they're very much originated in Western culture where sex and eroticism is very problematic from the Catholic Church uh, on. But in India, for example, we, we know that uh, you can have images of deities making love with each other in a very different way. Like in Tibetan tankas, you'll see couples uh, in union and fire, and, and they're looking into each other's eyes, and they're in a very high state of union. Now, I think looking at Salvador Dali, you'll get an experience of about the Western unconscious mind of it being very problematic. But if you look at a tanka from Tibet, you'll see images in which it's ecstatic. And we almost, the, the speediest path I can think of is to try to leave, uh, in a, not leave, but transition from a Western culture, which has a very problematic history in all the artists, many of the artists, uh, 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 Hieronymus Bosch, uh, lots of the artists who tried to depict the, what was going on in the West, very torturous looking paintings. But if you compare it with a Tibetan tanka, you go, wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you even have an image of Christ even flirting with Mary Magdalene, the Catholic Church will, will, will boycott everything that you do if an, as an artist. But in India, you have temples. It's not, it's a different, it's, it is a sacred type of connection. You can't just call it people getting it on. It really is a much more whole. And then you see how small of a little pond poor Salvador Dali was living in. Of course, it was going to he was going to come up with a tortured experience where the best you can do is become the great masturbator. 
Yeah, I really like that comparison. I, th- I think that's very accurate and well said. So in your in your book you use you talk about sublimative passion to fuel yoga movements and postures, getting the body's prana to move where it is needed. I mean what what is sublimative passion and how does this affect prana movement? Yeah, I, I, you know the word sublimation is it's from psychoanalysis. It's a, it's it's we know something about it, but the Sanskrit word would be urdhvareta, and it translates really as this full blossoming of the seed. And so it's just a continuity with the genital puberty, with the teenager's puberty. It's not kind of a sublimation of it. it it's much more of a continuity, and it, it, you feel. Uh, blissful feelings, erotic feelings. The naming is want to be sensitive to it, so that you can name whatever those feelings are in a way that generates bodily movements. Could be dancing, could be uh, yoga asanas, uh, and as you, you your body kind of you can you move your body just the way that will make you feel a good feeling. And that's liberation. Liberation in, in erotic embodiment is we're free to move our body, not just masturbate it like Salvador Dali kind of showed, but you can move your whole body. I can move my finger just a quarter of an inch over here and smile and look until I'm totally free. And I start feeling, you know, I can feel as much joy as nobody's holding me back. You know, it's just in my head. And so I start feeling, wow. You know, that's when I say, I, I hear you ask me questions and you touch me with your soul. Nobody's stopping me from saying that to you. I, my mind might say, well, he's a radio interview. But then I'll say, I, I'm not trapped in that. He, he, Xavier's asking me about his, his romantic life. And if, if I'm not touched by that, I'm missing. And I'm free to say something about it. Likewise, I'm free to move. To, uh, and, and then I do, I, I spread out the, the capacity to feel bliss, similar to what happens in the penis or vagina or the nipples, but I'm, I'm doing it. I'm, just, I'm moving it everywhere, and in that movement it changes. You, you start feeling, oh, it's very uh, limited to only be about intercourse. Oh, okay. It's not only just about intercourse, huh. it's dancing about intercourse. If it was, then nobody could put on a a ballet or a folk dancing festival because everyone would think it was X-rated. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, so we have to liberate ourselves from this X-ratedness that lets the arrows go everywhere, but not reintroduce, oh, now it's sexual. We know that that a ballet performance, the, the women wear tutus, but nobody is rushing with their, you know, uh, a band ballet, it's, it's a pornography, you know, no one, you know, and so we're just, it's not sublimation, it's animation. It's animation with all kinds of emotions until finally, yeah, this uh, passion that we restrict, really, we restrict it to the genitals. We restrict that passion to the nipples and it stays there for a whole lifetime. And what you find in this kind of permitting movement the energy goes everywhere, but it, 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 it redistributes itself so fully that it's not the same old sexual energy anymore. Yeah, Stuart, that really woke me up a little bit. I, I uh, 
That makes a lot of sense to me. So, so okay, so moving on here. So in, in Eros, Consciousness, and Kundalini, you talk about tantric celibacy. And I, I think a lot of Westerners shun celib- celibacy. It's kind of looked at, looked down at. I mean, how how is celibacy important? And I mean, what do you have to say about that? It's another super question. And it takes a, a while for my words to sink in because it's such a huge leap. But celibacy is, uh, in the Catholic Church, has very little in common with what Buddha did, although he also was a monk. Uh, it's just like saying um, every baby is a little bit different, and nobody will argue with that. Just because it's called a baby doesn't mean that they are cookie cutters. It's equally true of celibacies. And so when we go over to something like Buddhism, or even some of the great mystics like Meister Eckhart or Teresa of Avila or St. John, some of these high-level saints in the, in the Catholic Church, they awaken this puberty that I was describing. And in that puberty, you have an intermarriage. You start having the male and female energies interacting inside of one's own body. Nothing could be more erotic than that type of experience of feeling the male and female energies in one's or, or genetic background or chemistry in the same body. That's what yoga actually meant. Yoga was a person in union of the hatha, the sun and the moon, the, the, the two great energies in the, uh, in the body, and we're getting them to interact with each other within your own body. Uh, and yoga was the outcome, was these blissful types of movements, blissful types of breathing patterns, uh, and, and finally, the whole conscious mind has a kind of a endless orgasm that's called, that we call in, enlightenment. You're just so awake because the energy ha- is marrying inside of oneself that uh, uh, there's like the Dalai Lama. He, he's not repressed. He's a, a monk. People look at him and don't think, oh, but that poor guy. The problem is the, the poor priests and, and nuns and monks in, in Catholic religion, they didn't have much yoga. They, they had to make good on their vow in a very restricted mode of celibacy. And it proved too much for many of them. It was just too much. But when you travel to the Indian model of the body and all the puberties that I'm describing and this intermarriage, you see it, it's, 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 a, it's a joyful thing. I did it for at least 30 years, you could say, in this very solo way, and it was completely a wonderful experience. Yeah, yeah. You know, Stuart, we're, we are approaching the end here. That flew by, but, I mean, you describe these cultural barriers, and, I mean, how... How do you think we are being affected by this? Like, it, I mean, yoga is being practiced more and more through Western society, and and people are kind of catching on. So, I mean, it's it kind of seems like you and I are ahead of the curve by about ten or fifteen years. <laughs> well said. Yeah, you know, I, when I was teaching yoga in '72, they confused the word with yogurt. You know, a lot, we've, lots happened in the last 30, 40 years, but there's only 5% of the Indo-Tibetan archive has even been translated. And it's a problem because so many people have become an expert in those 5%, and, 
and to and they like it. They don't want they're it's tre- it's a, a a bit threatening to believe. Oh, there's uh, fifteen times more that I don't know, and that's what I, what I wrote the book is for uh, the next five to ten years of people who such as yourself that are interested and in, we can have to be humble that we we only are just beginning. It's a whole huge cultural transmission from not just India but China. With, Dao, with uh, what they call Nidan, or that's a Taoist uh, Kundalini Yoga, uh, letting all this information in, and to, we need you know how many trillions of dollars were spent on promoting the sexual liberation uh, since the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It, all the movies and all the music that helps people to at least not feel guilty about sex. We're going to need some percentage of that to transform pornography, for example, so that it's not going back into the, uh, the, the the first puberty, but it's liberating all the chakras. That's a huge area. Movies, songs, and then yoga classes will have to radically transform so that they're free form and not just flowing, but ecstatically flowing. Everywhere we set our eyes, something probably will be changing. The sense of what a marriage is, that it's a joyful thing rather than a ball and chain. What a baby is, and, it, it, and then the maturity that comes along with it that will eventually eliminate the need for abortions, by and large, and contraception. The, the, the tremendous maturity will change the world, hopefully in, in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, until where the world will be now will be just as further evolved as I saw what happened between 1949, when I was born, when, for example, I'd never even seen a black human being until I was about seven years old. <laughs> so huge. You know, my school was one of the first to have integration. You know, we've come a long way to have a black man in, in the White House. You know, what will happen in the year 2030, 2040? I wrote that book for myself if I reincarnate, so I'd have a book start out <laughs> and, and, and somewhat like how you. Well, Stuart, this conversation has been enlightening, sir. I really, truly appreciate your time. I highly suggest that anyone listening pick up a copy of this. It it really struck a chord for me. The book is called Advanced Spiritual Intimacy. Stuart, where can people, is there a website that people can go to to find you? Yes, you can get a signed copy if you really would like that. By just Googling my name, going to my website, you'll get my email address. I'd be happy to inscribe personal message and mail you a copy. If you uh, can't, you know, want to go quickly, you can just go to Amazon.com. And, uh, book's a bestseller on Amazon.com almost every week. What is, what is your site called? The- my site would be under my name, Stuart oh, okay. Spotsky, and I think it's called Counseling Services. Okay, we will make sure that the link is available for anyone listening. Stuart, thank you again, sir. It's been great. This is The Human Experience. My name is Xavier, and we are going to get out of here. We will see you guys next week.